Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. He offered me this question. He said, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? I love that question and I use it all the time, but I was coaching Krista Quarles when she was CEO of OpenTable and she said, I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth. She said, the question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. So, so that works too. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, hello. On today's episode, we're going to talk about feedback, that hard-to-define concept wherein we are supposed to learn and grow by giving each other shit. (laughs) How should we give it and receive it? Should we give it at all? But before we dive into all that, I think this show would be better if we checked in. Feedback noted. We will begin this episode, like all the others, with a check-in round question, which is... How would you describe your style? By which I mean sartorial style, not style of giving and receiving feedback. Fair enough. Um, For anyone that's ever seen me in a public event, you know the answer is I wear all black. The occasional white shirt or gray, but it's all, it's going to be monotone. It's going to be grayscale. My usual explanation for that, the sort of high-minded version is it reduces my decision fatigue and allows me to live this amazing creative lifestyle. (laughs) The actual answer is that I'm just kind of suck at getting dressed and I can do it in the dark. So that's real talk on my style. What about you? I have given you a lot of shit for all of your black clothing in my life, to which you once retorted that at least you don't dress like a Muppet, which is how I dress in all (laughs) patterns all the time, uh, which makes it very difficult to get dressed because there are no solid fabrics in my closet. Uh, So I describe my style as uh, vibrant and also I'll know it when I see it because there's nothing consistent about any aspect of it. It begs the question of what we look like when we go out in public together. But I feel like you sometimes hold back now with me. You dial it down at one click if you know we're going to be like on stage together or something. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't want to outshine you so, so drastically. (laughs) I don't want you to just disappear into the curtain. Fair enough. (laughs) Um, Okay. So today's topic is feedback and we all know what it is, but do we? But do um, what is it? Why do we do it? Just get us grounded in the topic of feedback. Feedback is any information that we get from outside sources. That can include things like someone rating and reviewing your podcast or uh, body language that someone is conveying during an interaction or a meeting or a written performance review or any other manner of input that you are getting from a source outside of yourself. That's how I think Mm -hmm. about feedback as being really that broad of a spectrum of data. 
I think that makes sense. And when I was looking at some of the early work that informs our space, like early writing on sociocracy and the like, they kind of go right to the feedback loops in nature. Like mm-hmm. you, you do a thing, you try a thing, you poke the bear, what happens? You know, he bites you, he doesn't. So just the closed loop of learning that can go on, right? But that's not exactly what the feedback experience is for most companies, for most no, people. No, it is not. So, so given that you kind of come from that world in your distant past, what is, what is feedback 1.0? Like, what is feedback for 90% of people out there inside a corporate system? Amazingly enough, it is still traditional, sporadic, leader-led, top-down performance data. So what I still see in a lot of companies that I work in and around and talk to friends who work in and around is a traditional annual or semi-annual performance management system where there is a manager who tells you uh, to the best of their ability how you you did. (laughs) Yeah. And whether you're worth any money at the end of this year. So often tied to compensation, often on a scale, which is the, the worst of it. Along with the distribution curve is the old forced ranking and then the ranking and yanking. Uh, I think originally <laughs> made famous by GE and then later Goldman Sachs of uh, house cleaning the bottom 10% just as soon as they right. get their bonus and you can. Uh, so I think for a lot of people, astonishingly enough, that's still what it looks like. So with yeah. that as our basis, why do you think that sucks? There's so many reasons, but I I think the first is just that we have to acknowledge some things about human nature and human development. And even though it might feel appropriate to run that way, it doesn't actually get us the results that we want. So first of all, leader-led feedback means that the person who's receiving it isn't in control. They're not, they don't have agency, they don't have autonomy. And we know that people like to develop through their own directive, like through their own curiosity, their own agenda, what they want to work on. And so if it comes from a punitive place, or a kind of a happening to me extrinsic place, that's going to mess with my motivation, it's going to mess with how I show up to it, it's going to make it more compliance behavior than actual growth. Like I might do what you tell me to do, but not for the right reasons. And so it's all performative. So I think it gets really um, messed up really fast in that respect. I also think that for most of the leaders that are still doing it that way, they're still thinking of their of the role of feedback is basically how do I get you to please me? Like, how do I get you to do what I want? as opposed to how do I actually help you grow? And of course, there are you know millions of incredible managers out there who care and sweat the development of the people they work with, but they're still doing it from this singular perspective, which mm-hmm. is like, hey, this is what I see. And there is a sense, and I think this sense is encouraged and, and actually kind of developed in us that the higher up we go, the more our perception of what's true is actually true. Mm-hmm. That like, I see that you need to work on this, and so that's gospel. And of course, the data tells a different story that actually, you know, one perspective on anything is almost certainly going to be wrong. And when it comes to people and the complexity of their development, you know, one leader thinks somebody's great. Another thinks that same person stinks. What's the truth? Right. And the truth is like, well, it depends. It depends on the context. It depends on the work. And one perspective is almost never enough. So those are some of the big criticisms that I've you know seen and experienced. But I mean, you may have others that you want to mm. layer on to the, the icing. It's very easy as you rise in an organization to believe that with power and with positional authority, your biases are reduced in some way. And they're actually much worse. 
Like the further you get from the context that people are operating in, actually the less you know really about how they're doing and how they're impacting the system and what that means. But that would, I imagine, confound a lot of leaders who fundamentally believe that when they're giving feedback, they are giving objective information and input to a person. Truth. And the problem with that, as we see it, is that that is one person's opinion. And if we could just call feedback opinions and say, it's like an Amazon review, that's your opinion of that down (laughs) comforter. And my opinion is that it was great. Your opinion is that it was underfilled. And my opinion is that it was breathable. Let's just be honest about the fact that every single person is a flawed and terrible raider because we all bring our own shit to those conversations. And most of us, I've certainly had the experience personally of having a very strong opinion about a person who worked for me directly and oppositionally challenged by someone else who worked equally or more closely with that person. Where I've been like, this fucking guy, we got to fire this guy. And somebody else is like, I think he's the best member of your team to include you. And I'm like, oh, good good news. Thank you (laughs) for letting me know that. I remember remember when I was doing more kind of traditional or top-down reviewing, I almost had to rely on a few key people that were like the horse whisperers to me that would be like, oh, well, here's what's actually going on with that person. Here's what you need to like nurture. Here's what you need to say. Like I knew enough about the fact that I was like too disconnected to to not just go for it on gut because I just learned like things would backfire. You know, feedback Mm -hmm. would not be well received or I'd be perceived as someone that was not in touch because I wasn't, because I, you know, I'm the type of person that's like heads down on a project all the time, whatever my latest shit is. So yeah. I, I, I remember even then I had to rely on the opinions of others, which of course begged the question, well, if you're going to do that, why not just include them in the process in the first right. place? Which I think is a nice tee up to the second generation of feedback, you know, feedback 2.0, let's call mm-hmm. it, which is the more woke feedback that maybe most of our listeners are used to thinking about. Right. Yeah. And so that is this idea of it's 360, it's multiple perspectives. If it's super, you know, kind of developed, it's it's actually user led. So mm-hmm. each person is asking who they want, what they want, and using that feedback to kind of construct a narrative and a, and a path for themselves based on their own needs and curiosities. And the assumption in the system is, well, if everybody has to at least do this, has to go out and solicit help then there'll be some kind of developmental agenda here that like, you know, they'll learn something, they'll get better in some way, and that ultimately that'll feed us. So what would you add to that? How would you kind of um, characterize the the second wave of feedback that most of us are living in? So I certainly think it's better than wave one. And for the wave <laughs> oneers listening, let's try to move toward wave Check it two. Out. Check it out. Uh, anytime you're doing something that is psychologically risky, giving people agency to control their own experience is a really good move. So user-led feedback to me is really important because at a minimum, even if you're about to call something that I believe to be true about myself fully into question, at least I asked for it. At least it didn't just like appear in my inbox or in an HR system and I just opened it up on a Monday morning over coffee and had my stomach drop through the floor because I had no (laughs) idea about the assault that was coming. So at least in the wave two, there is some containment if you're letting people do that. And the other tenant that 
we see is that it's more frequent. It's more ongoing. So you're seeing more tools and more software that support at a minimum quarterly, but at a maximum event-triggered feedback or daily feedback. And you're getting data both from the individual and from those around the individual. And, and, and that in and of itself is a good disruption to the pattern of let's sit down for one hour, one time each year and yeah. ruin your life. And then you can, take the, <laughs> you can take the Christmas holiday to put your ego back together. So the pushback that I almost always hear to the second wave feedback is, well, what if Rodney really needs to work on her mm-hmm. cursive and she doesn't ask about her cursive? cursive? Then how do we like how do we make sure that her handwriting gets better? And so yeah. what is your like if a leader asks you about that, what is your response? My response is there's nothing wrong with giving people information as long as you are clear that it is your opinion and as long as you ask for their consent. So you just showing up and saying, uh, your handwriting looks like that of a serial killer, it might not go <laughs> super well. Because, right. because we have to look at what the processes are underneath that, right? It's not just that Rodney's not open to feedback or Rodney has a blind spot or whatever. It's that if I'm unprepared, my whole internal being does a whole bunch of work is triggered by new information that I was not expecting to have to process. This is about the ego myself. and identity stuff. This is the ego and identity stuff. So when you say that something that is important to me is wrong and I'm not ready for it and I haven't asked for it, the likelihood of me being able to do anything about that is really low because I just get tripped into like a total fear state. And then there's the other side of it, which is if you tell me that something is wrong and I don't care, then you have to do some other work so that I'm aware that that, that, that that's actually important. And that's where I think the nonviolent communication tenant of this comes in, where it's not so much about you saying you should improve your handwriting because I said so. It's about right. what that creates for you and the request you're making from me. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about MVC and how we think about that in terms of feedback. So the thing about MVC or nonviolent communication, which is a subject that I've been getting more and more interested in over the years, is that it's a way to have what would normally be a feedback conversation in, you know, using a method that's more focused on connection and empathy and what is true rather than opinion and and just kind of keeping things in that in that argumentative place. And so it has a few components. The first is just an observation without judgment. So trying to just notice what's happening when you walk into my office, something right, something happens, then it, it's about identifying a feeling that you have. So what what are you feeling as a result of what's happening, which again, is not really arguable, your feelings are your feelings. Then uh, connecting those feelings to a need, to a deep need that you have that all people share. So it should be something that's so fundamental that we can all empathize with it. And then finally, making a request. Uh, Would you be willing to X based on what you've just heard and see if there's a way that we can all win, that there's a way that we can all get what we need, get our needs met through requests that we make and and connect with. So um, that's the basic kind of anatomy of, of the nonviolent communication framework. So let's try that for real with something that happened today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's on my mind. <laughs> and uh, and hopefully for the people listening, this becomes something that you can use immediately in your own lives because it is quite powerful. This is so, real, folks. We I did not anticipate this. 
<laughs> uh, talk about consent. Uh, so when you wrote today in our Slack channel a really nice appreciation, I felt both very happy about that and also quite relieved because of things that had been going on. Because I have a need for recognition from people around me who I love and respect and reinforcement around work that can be quite challenging. Uh, So would you be willing in the future, every so often, when you see something like you saw today, to do that? It's interesting that you that you brought that up because we had this kind of somewhat challenging phone call where we were diagnosing a situation with with one of our clients and talking about what we want to do next, et cetera. And I felt really practical and tactical in the call. And then when I got off, I realized that, you know, I had another feeling, which was this feeling of like, well, I feel like maybe I came off as really callous and really like problem oriented and didn't didn't recognize the bigger picture. So, you know, so I, I have also a need for that kind of connection and that, um, you know, mutual promotion of just like, let's keep the feels going and let's keep the motivation up. And so, uh, so I, I tried that and honestly, it felt like too little too late to me in some way. So I'm glad that it was, was well received. And, um, and I, my goal is to do it in the future and to do it live when mm. possible. Yeah. Yeah. So we did it. Ta-da. <laughs> so how did it feel to do that? As the receiver, well, obviously, when you use the steps, I think it can feel sometimes overly structured. But I've settled into that, so that didn't bother me. Um, what I did feel is a little bit of anticipation of like, what's it going to be? And <laughs> and when you sure. said it, it was especially relieving because when you brought up that part, I was actually worried you were going to say that was too little, too late, <laughs> like that it was actually offensive. Um, because it was, because it was not in the moment. So it was actually, it was actually really nice to hear. And, and I think because it's positive and reinforcing, it's way more likely to come up again. And I think and be present in my mind as opposed to something maybe that I stuff down and try not to think about again for the rest of the week. So, yeah. So I'll get you back on a future episode, but that was, that was super helpful. So the last thing I want to hit on is, is to do with how we receive feedback in this sort of second wave and one of the best tricks that I've heard, which 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 comes from this same uh, you know fifteen commitments of conscious leaders book that I've mentioned before to you at least and maybe to our listeners, where they talk about when someone gives you feedback rather than than receiving it from that place of like do I let this in mm-hmm. or not and does this fit with my worldview or not and is this true or not true and how can I kind of get litigating about how it isn't true to just say to yourself like what's true about it mm-hmm. and just find like the one little bit, maybe it's 1%, maybe it's 10%. Like how could this be true for me as a way to receive and find the value in it? Because there's a sense that like anybody's perspective, there's something about it that's true. There's something about it that can add value to your life. And if you adopt that hat of like, no matter what you say, I'm going to find a way that it's true. Then everything you ever hear is useful. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of a cool hack. So I just wanted to hit that before we move on from second wave feedback. But like, if you're hearing it, just find the part that might be true to you and then use it. Right. So there are ideas about a wave of feedback or lack thereof that will overtake 
the current sort of woke state that we just described where we're <laughs> making requests and we're doing it with frequency and we're empowered to do so. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about those rumblings and what we think might be coming. I think the most recent thing that we've both seen is some writing and speaking from Marcus Buckingham, who's mm-hmm. you know a thinker in our space with a, a new book recently out, um, where he's basically saying, yeah, just, you know, feedback sucks. Like, it just doesn't work. Um, focusing on the negative, you know, the shit sandwich is not the way. And even if you do it in the most kind of developmental humanist way possible, focusing on people's strengths and encouraging those and really just letting letting everything else go and letting people self-direct on their own development journey is better. Yeah. And it, you know, and in some ways I think it's positioned as even more controversial than what he's actually saying. But it is interesting to think about the idea of like, do I need to tell you what you're doing wrong, in my opinion, at all? And does that actually result in a benefit? So was there anything about that work or related work that you've seen that really stood out to you and made you like scratch your head? A couple of things. One is his contention that all learning comes from insight and all insight is necessarily internal. So while we can use external information to gather insight, if we don't create something from that, (laughs) it's just information, right? It has to sort of go through the machine from information to knowledge, to wisdom, to insight. And if it just stops at information, it's not that useful in our learning. Right. And ultimately our development. The other thing that I got to hear him talk about very recently is just the idea that we should focus on what you do better than anyone else does. Mm -hmm, And that mm -hmm. uh, weaknesses aren't things that you do poorly. They're things you do well that you hate. And (laughs) so just some different constructs around that. And just to go back to the exercise we just did, if you think about our separate perceptions of that tiny NBC conversation and me pulling out something you did really, really well, what is the likelihood of that to continue versus me just saying like it was too little too late or nothing at all, or it was good that you said it, but you should have said it that way instead. It's like find Mm -hmm. the moment and in the moment that it happens, say to someone more of that. I want to see more of that and worry less about the little offenses and little slights here and there that you might correct once, but you're probably not going to correct in a patterned way. I'm the first person to not be a behaviorist or a determinist, but it's making me think of the way that we're being counseled to train our new puppy, Mm. which was not present in my mind when I was training, you know, other dogs that I've, that I've owned and cared for, which is like, as much as it might feel good to yell at the dog when he makes a mistake or rub his nose in it or withhold or whatever you're going to do, none of that works for shit. Like all that works is catch them in the act of doing great things and be like, good boy. Here's the truth. And so obviously people are infinitely more complex than that and, and richer and more dynamic. But there is something to the fact that like, even for a very simple mammal, the negative shit doesn't work. And, and in our case, probably compounded, right? Like, because there's so many different ways that we can wiggle out of that and have it not connect. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's incredibly powerful for me. And I think it's hard to just focus on catching greatness in the moment and acknowledging it because it feels like unnecessary work because you're like, I'm already happy with this shit. Right. So why would I, like, it's extra work for me to notice it and acknowledge it and everything's fine. And we, we usually keep our heads down when everything's fine. But there's also an important emotional component 
I used to do feedback kind of training, like really how to give it and receive it, which had some fairly good tips, though it's not a thing that I would do now. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, you know, it was experiential in nature. And when I would partner people up and they would practice, especially in institutions where they never gave each other feedback, uh, right. I would ask them just to do positive mm. feedback. No, no criticisms. And it was very emotional. It's very yeah. hard to say nice things to people. And it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to hear nice things about yourself. And right. we could go right. deep into why all of that is. And there are a lot of real reasons for it. And there's a part that is true about emphasizing strength and uniqueness and greatness that is laziness. And there is another equally important part, which is it is in some ways easier for us to judge and criticize and level that kind of an opinion than for us right. to express something that is really generous. I think that's so true. And the the recent evidence of that, I don't know if you've experienced this before, but like getting a table of people at Thanksgiving to actually honestly acknowledge what they're grateful for, to give appreciation so hard. is uncomfortable. Very and, uncomfortable. And same thing in a company. And what's funny to me now that you're saying this, what's triggering for me is this idea that when we do gratitude work or appreciation work in circle with our team or with other teams, I never thought of that as feedback before. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And Interesting. yet we're doing it. And so right. that I think is kind of fun. So I have one, I have one parting question for you before we move on, which is um, given everything we've just talked about and how much of a moving target this is, can I still ask for feedback? <laughs> like if I'm listening, I'm wondering like, wait a second, what if I like getting feedback? What if I want to get feedback? Is that, you know, am I, am I going to still be part of the Brave New Work Club if I, if I go ask someone for their input? You can and you should, okay. for sure. The better you are at asking, the better information you're going to get from people. So right. carefully consider your sources and carefully consider what you really want to know. I get into conversations with people a lot, both coaching clients and colleagues at the ready, where they ask me for feedback. And my first question is, what do you really want to know? Mm. Because what I get is like, how do you think I'm doing? Or what do you right. think I can improve upon? And I'm like, you know what you want to ask about. So just <laughs> ask me and I'll tell you honestly what my answer is. Another hack for this is to think about feedback sources in a more expansive way. I mm -hmm. Part of my coaching study last year uh, required me to interview people, the, the people in my life who I am closest to about me, mm -hmm. which is not a thing that I have ever done before. And I thought it was going to be kind of a joke. And my best friend, my husband, my mom shared insight with me about me that they have never shared with me before, mm. which is much more valuable than any of the shit I got from managers for like 15 straight back-to-back -back years in formal <laughs> feedback settings. So look at the principle of the feedback you're gathering. What is it you really want to know so that you are creating insight for yourself? What's the information you want to put into the machine so you can turn it into insight? And then go to the right source and then ask the real question. I love that. I think that's perfectly said. So I was thinking about the perfect guest for this show before we got in, in the booth. And the person I thought would shed interesting light on it is Kim Scott 
who wrote the book Radical Candor that is on a lot of bookshelves right now. Um, and it's this whole idea of how do you care personally and challenge directly in giving feedback, which is a really weird combo for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to be thinking about this kind of second wave and maybe even like early third wave feedback, how to give and receive it well, I think, I mean, she's probably had an enormous amount of practice and experience and seeing a lot of people struggle with this. So I think her perspective would be great. Um, so when we get back after the break, we will be joined by Kim Scott. Ready, set, go. Hey, everybody. We're back with Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor. Kim, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So for those that haven't had the chance to read your book, can you just give us the lay of the land on the basic concept of Radical Candor and how you came to it? Sure. So the idea of Radical Candor, the subtitle is Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. <laughs> and, uh, and the idea is that for, for most of human history, we accomplished our great collaborative feats through terrible brutality, like <laughs> slavery, uh, and, and which was terrible. Then right, uh, right. The, the Industrial Revolution came along, and we replaced brutality with bureaucracy, which was frankly a giant step in the right direction, but still not exactly inspiring. Nobody loves bureaucracy. And the idea of radical candor is that in today's economy, in order to get things done as a leader, you really need to build a specific kind of relationship with each of your employees. And that relationship I describe as radical candor. And the idea of the relationship is that it's different. It's not a friendship. It, it's not family. It better not be a romance. And, uh, and so what kind of relationship is it? It's a relationship in which the core things that you have to do are care personally and challenge directly. Mm -hmm. And that sounds pretty simple, right? Who doesn't who doesn't challenge directly? Who doesn't care personally? Uh, so one of the things that I've done to explain radical candor is to explain what it's not. Mm -hmm. And so when you challenge directly, but you forget to show you care personally, that is obnoxious aggression. Right. Some people call that the asshole quadrant, but I beg people don't do that because then they use the idea to start writing names in boxes and right, right, and right. really radical candor is like a compass to guide your conversations and your relationships to a better place. So uh, what happens when you're obnoxiously aggressive? Very often, instead of moving the right direction on care personally, we we tend to move the wrong direction on challenge directly to say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. It's no big deal. The false apology. That's what I call sort of manipulative insincerity. Mm -hmm. And that's where backstabbing behavior, passive aggressive behavior, very most toxic kinds of workplace behaviors creep in. And it's fun to tell stories about manipulative insincerity. It's fun to tell <laughs> stories about obnoxious aggression. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of us make the vast majority of our mistakes when we do show we care personally, but we're so worried about not hurting someone's feelings 
that we forget to challenge directly. And that yes. I call mm-hmm. ruinous empathy. That's <laughs> ruinous me empathy. sometimes. Yes, that's me. Well, I mean, and if I'm when I'm honest with myself, I'm often, I think I'm being ruinously empathetic, but I'm actually being manipulatively insincere. Oh, yeah, true, true, true. Yeah. Um, and so so that's what radical candor is. And, and the part of the book that has gotten kind of the most play is a part of the book about feedback, which is mostly what we're going to talk about today. But it's, it can, these ideas can also be applied to how you think about building a team and how you think about getting stuff done. Because in the end, you have sort of three responsibilities as a manager. You have to create a culture of feedback. You've got to build a great team. And the point of both of those previous two things is to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. So that's the book in a nutshell. There's a lot more there. Go buy There's it so many it. things to talk about, <laughs> even just based on the four quadrants. But because this is our feedback episode, I think let's start there. So, uh, so Kim, when you think about you know the more formal manager to employee or power holder to less powerful holder kind of relationship in a system, how does that relate to radical candor? What are some of the things that you see? What are some of the things that you would like to see instead? So I think a few things. One is that when I think about radical candor, I'm thinking about sort of impromptu conversations. Mm -hmm. So I'm not thinking about the formal feedback process. In fact, I wrote a second edition of the book to cover this point specifically, because what radical candor is mostly about when applied to feedback are sort of coaching conversations Mm -hmm. and these really quick conversations where you're saying, here's what I see, what do you see? And so it's not necessarily about a formal performance review. However, I, there's, I have a lot of thoughts on why and when formal performance reviews are necessary and how you can design one so that it reinforces instead of destroys a, a culture of radical candor. Because I think one of the mistakes that people make with these formal processes is they think, oh, I don't have to talk to this person for six months or a year. I can just, I'm just going to do this process at the end of the year. And that's kind of like capping a rotten tooth. It's just going to rot faster. So, so you want to make sure that doesn't happen. So what is radical candor when there is a power imbalance, which there almost always is Mm -hmm. in, in a work setting? All the time. So the first thing that I would say is that if you're the one who has power, your job is first and foremost to try to set hierarchy to the side, not to abuse that power and to to get on an equal footing so that you can have a real conversation and a real relationship. Because there's there's almost nothing that's more damaging to a relationship than a power imbalance. So that's Mm -hmm. number one. Part of the one of the biggest mistakes that people make about radical candor, uh, in addition to confusing it with obnoxious aggression, but another mistake that people make about radical candor is that they think it's all about the boss giving the employee critical feedback. And right. that's one not direction. The case. Yeah. yeah. One direction. And so there here's the here's the radical candor order of operations. And this is true whether you're the boss, the employee, or a peer up, down, and sideways. I hate hierarchical language, but I don't know how else to describe these these phenomena, which are real. So the first thing you need to do is solicit feedback. Mm-hmm. Don't dish it out before you prove you can take it. You, if, if, <laughs> if, you view, if you view feedback as a gift, 
solicit it first and, and lead by gifts. example. Yeah. Right. Uh, go go ask for the gift before you <laughs> cram it, cram that gift down someone else's throat. Right. right? So so first of all, solicit feedback. Second of all, focus on the good stuff. Your job, especially if you're the leader, is to paint a picture of what success looks like. Mm-hmm. And praise is a much better tool for doing that than criticism is. So you want to make sure that you're focusing on the good stuff, offering praise. And and very often, you know, <laughs> helpful hint, if it's something you would say to your dog, it's not very good praise. <laughs> very often, I think people <laughs> tend to treat praise as this kind of BS thing they have to do in order to earn the right to give criticism. And that's not a good way to look at it. Yeah, like the pat on the head is not that helpful. Yeah, yeah, good job. Like that doesn't tell you anything. Totally unspecific. It's so interesting to hear you say that too, because I think for most people, when they pick up the book and wave it around, are probably thinking about getting to the the stuff they want to criticize, right? Like yeah. this is this is my ticket to like really telling the truth, yeah. As opposed yeah. to really you know honoring what's going well. Yes, you know if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it, <laughs> <laughs> and and I got some. I got some about this book, and and some of the most common feedback that I got was that people tend to mistake radical candor as they tend to use it as an excuse to act like a garden variety jerk. So uh, one time sitting in a meeting with a company where I was working and this guy walked in and he said, in the spirit of radical candor. And then he just, he proceeded to be an asshole. And and I was like, that's not really the spirit of radical candor. That's the spirit of obnoxious aggression. Right. And so, so part of the reason why I wrote the second edition was to help try to help anyway, clear up this this confusion. So one of the things I did in the second edition is I offered a new version of the radical candor framework. And in the upper right-hand quadrant, instead of calling it radical candor, I called it compassionate candor, just to mm. sort of drive, drive the point home. Mm-hmm. Right. Sells fewer books, but is more accurate and descriptive. <laughs> well, yeah, the book is still called Radical Candor. Of course. The, t- <laughs> the title does work. I got some good feedback about the book as well. Of course. Of course. So we start with painting a picture of what's good. And then where do we mm-hmm. head from there, Kim? So no, that's not even where you start. You start with asking the other person asking to paint for, a picture of what's bad. Right. Getting our you. own gifts. Yes. Then yes, exactly. So you, you want to make sure you're focusing on the good stuff. Now, what's next is sharing some, some criticism. So first is soliciting criticism. Next is giving praise. Next is giving criticism. And when you're offering criticism to someone, and I, I wrestled a lot, by the way, with using the word criticism or not using the word criticism. Mm-hmm. In the end, I did it because all of these, even the word feedback is kind of a euphemism, which mm-hmm. doesn't feel radically candid. So I try to think of it not as feedback, but as guidance. Mm-hmm. And guidance is both praise and criticism. And you're sort of saying, yes, do a little more of this, do a little less of that. So guidance is something we long for. Feedback is screechy and makes us want to put our hands over our ears. So the idea of when you go into a conversation where you know you're going to have to share some information with someone, and maybe it's not information, maybe you're sharing your opinion. The first thing you need to do when you're, when you're offering criticism to someone is you want to make sure that you are checking that you're being humble. You mm. could be wrong. You could be mm. wrong about what you're saying. 
offering somebody criticism is a gift in one of two ways. It's either a gift because you're right about your opinion, and by telling the person what you see, you give them an opportunity fix to fix the problem. Or it's a gift because you're wrong in what you're saying, mm. and only by telling the other person what you think do you give them the opportunity to change your opinion? So, mm -hmm. so I think making, this is why I call it candor and not truth. You know, if I, if I walk in and I say, I'm going to tell you the truth, <laughs> I'm kind of implying I have a pipeline to God and you don't know shit from Shinola. And that's not a great way to start a conversation. So you want to make sure that you are, are offering candor, not truth. You're, and, and to me, the idea of candor implies, here's what I see. I also want to know what you see so that we can get on the same page. So you want to be mm -hmm. humble. You also want to state your intention to be helpful. The purpose of, of offering either praise or criticism really is to either help the person know what to do more of or help the person know what to do less of. It's not to kick them in the shins or prove that you are smarter, better, more powerful, whatever. Your, your, your point is to collaborate and to help get to a better outcome. So you want to you want to state your intention to be helpful, and it doesn't take long. Uh, just sort of, I I know this project is important to you. I think what I'm going to say can help it be more successful. Whatever, uh, you want to make sure that you take just a second to state your intention. You also want to make sure that you offer this as quickly as possible. Feedback has a short half life. Mm -hmm. So, so you don't, you don't want to wait. The longer you wait, the more it kind of bounces around in your mind, the more you have to remind the person of the context, the longer you wait, the harder it is, the more time it takes and the less useful it is. So right, offer right. it right away, <laughs> right away. You want to do it whenever possible in person, something like 90% of communication is nonverbal. And so you really want to make sure that you're understanding how what you're saying is landing for the other person. So if at all possible, I know a lot of people work remotely, but if at all possible, have these conversations in person. If you cannot do it in person because you're in different cities or something, at least do it over video. And right. if for some reason you can't do it over video, do it over the telephone. So it's a synchronous conversation. So you mm -hmm. can hear the tone of the person's voice. Don't don't send an email don't just put it down in a tool and never I mean have I can't use slack emojis to express no, my feedback slack. to colleagues <laughs> slack is wonderful for many things it is a shitty tool for feedback right uh, uh, and you know frankly I also recently somebody read radical candor and then talked about co uh, sort of code comments so in general, there, there are things you need to be able to put in writing, corrections, you need to correct someone's errors. But if you're giving someone feedback, and there's a difference between correcting an error or a debate and giving a person feedback. But if you're giving a person feedback, you're giving a person criticism or praise, much better to do it in person. You also want to offer praise in public, criticism in private. If you criticize someone in public, you usually kind of invoke their lizard brain, their fight or mm -hmm. flight response. And when someone's in that frame of mind, they literally cannot hear you. So you are just wasting your breath. You're just wasting your breath. Uh, and last but not least, and then I promise I'll stop talking. You want to <laughs> make you want to make sure 
that you are offering feedback that is specific and that helps someone improve. You don't want to offer somebody feedback about fundamental personality attributes. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So using situation behavior impact or something like that can help you make sure you're being specific enough. So Kim, I'm curious to go back to the step that you talked about of declaring your intent or making that clear. Something I've noticed a lot recently is that when a power holder or a boss is under pressure themselves or like, you know, feeling the pinch themselves in terms of performance and delivery, a lot of times they turn to criticizing the people who work for them. And I've seen this happen again and again where, you know, when I meet someone, they tell me about their team of all-stars. And as the pressure increases, suddenly it's like, here's why this person and this person and this person aren't living (laughs) up to my expectations and they're all idiots and I'm going to have to start over again. Um, I was just curious, like, so, so a couple of things came to mind as you were talking. One is, do you ever... Do you see that? And two is, do you think that a boss really declaring their intent for the feedback can help them become more aware if they are doing that? I do think so. I mean, just forcing yourself to stop and say, I'm saying this because I want I want to help this project get back on track. Yeah. Uh, can 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 be just a, a small interrupter. I mean, if you, especially if you can be aware of when it seems like you're saying something that might not sound sincere or might mm-hmm. not even feel sincere. I mean, sometimes you are giving feedback because you are stressed and you are pissed off and you right. are trying to kick the person in the shins. <laughs> and, <laughs> my and intent so, to start you. Yeah, <laughs> my intent is to kick you on the shins because I'm pissed off. And I think that the more you can do as a leader, I mean, and that's like, I want to have some compassion for the leaders too. Like sure. that's, you've got a lot of responsibility on your shoulders and, uh, and, and that's kind of natural and human. And so if you can forgive yourself for that, for those instincts, you can more likely see them and not make the mistake again. Mm-hmm. But you can't do right if you don't know when you're doing wrong. And so I think very often stating your intention to be helpful is is useful as useful for self-awareness as it is for communication. So you've been doing this for a while, obviously, both in your actual practical career and then now also as kind of a coach and a guide. Um, I'm curious about the emotional experience because one of the reasons I struggle with candor and and with kind of confrontation generally in my career has been it brings up a lot of emotions in me and a lot of feelings. And so I'm wondering for someone that's just starting to try to practice this or trying to kind of do it the way you advise, and then maybe for someone that's been doing that for a long time and has some level of mastery in it, what is or what should be the emotional experience? Like what should we expect to feel? You're going to feel terrible. I hate to say it, <laughs> but you are going to feel terrible. It, this is hard. This stuff is really hard, and it's hard for two reasons. Part of the reason that it's hard is because for some reason, well, not for some, I, I think I can explain why, but very often we have this mis- misconception that we shouldn't be having feelings at right. work, mm-hmm. and that's just ridiculous. Of course, we're going to have feelings right. at work. So I, I think... Part of the problem happens when you're 18, 19, 20, 20 years old. You're sort of right at that moment in your life when, you're, when your ego is maximally fragile and your persona is beginning to solidify. 
and you got mm-hmm. your first job and somebody comes along and says, be professional. Mm-hmm. And for an awful lot of us, that means leave your emotions, leave your real self, leave your humanity, leave, leave everything that's best about you at home and show up at work like some kind of robot. So I think the first thing that you can do to, to deal with the discomfort that you're going to feel is to realize that you are going to have feelings at work, right. that, that you want to be more than just, you, I'm not saying being, be unprofessional at work, but you want to be more than just professional at work. You want to have mm-hmm. real human relationships at work. And if you're showing up at work like some kind of robot, you can't possibly have real human relationships. So I think that's one thing is to just be aware that emotions at work are okay. And number two is I think a lot of us have been told sort of since we learned to speak, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden it's your job to say it. And I would argue if you really care about the people who you work with, it's not just your job, but it's actually your moral obligation to these relationships to say it. If, if you see somebody For stepping sure. in front of a bus, you want to tell them, hey, right. you're going to get hit by a bus. And so I think being aware of those two things, uh, the thing that's going to prevent you from caring personally is this be professional business. The thing that's going to prevent you from challenging directly is this, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all business. So one thing you can do is sort of be more aware of, of that. I think another thing that, ha- that has helped me probably more than anything else is to tell stories about a time when someone told me something that maybe stung a little bit in the moment, but stood me in good stead for the next two decades of my career. Mm -hmm. And to think about how valuable that was. And, and then when I'm tempted not to, not to offer that to someone else, I realize that I, I can, that it's not an act of kindness. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of what a lot of what prevents us from being radically candid is that it feels mean. And I don't want people to be mean, but I think if you reframe it and you realize that that saying the thing is an act of kindness, then then it becomes a little bit easier. But it's never gonna be easy. Radical candor, it's it's fast, two-minute impromptu conversations. It's free, doesn't cost you anything. You can buy the book if you want, but you can check it out from the library too. Uh, but but it does take enormous emotional discipline. And mm-hmm. so thinking through, and I'm open to feedback because I certainly don't have all the answers about how to develop enormous emotional discipline. <laughs> One question that brings up for me is the balance between the emotions of the person who is having the conversation, you know, who has something they want to convey, and the timing. What I find for myself is often when I am sort of fired up and I feel like I really need to say this thing out loud to this person, there is a real balance between doing it close to the moment so that it feels relevant and it feels fresh. Um, And I'm not saying fired up like I'm triggered and angry, but I do think sometimes if I give myself as the giver of information a little bit more time to be circumspect and to be thoughtful, I am a better giver of information. How do you think about the balance between like, uh, recency and timeliness and also self-control and coming to the conversation in a way that's like balanced. 
Yeah, it's it's an important question. So there's a couple of things here. One is that nine times out of 10, when I'm telling myself, oh, I'll say it better tomorrow. Yeah. I'm lying to myself. Oh, that's <laughs> interesting. I'm, I'm You're just totally try- right. I'm, I'm just trying to to delay. I'm just, just I really don't want to give the feedback. Yeah. So <laughs> now there, there, there are times, obviously, when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired, where I really should wait. So, or they are. I, that's yeah. the part that I think was interesting. That you thought, I thought you were getting at, Rodney, is like maybe they're not ready to hear it, you know, in the in the immediate moment. And how do we read into that? Yes. Also that. Yeah. Yes. Now, now, when it comes to soliciting feedback, though, if they are angry, that might be your best moment to solicit feedback. <laughs> and because mm. and, people usually are more likely to tell you what they really think when they're mad than when they're than, than really at any other time. And they may not say it perfectly. And, and so as long as you yourself are not raging mad, but if, yeah. if someone's mad at you, that's actually a really good moment to solicit feedback. But again, it's counterintuitive it, yeah. because our instinct when someone most, I mean, my instinct anyway, is when someone's mad at me, I want to avoid them. Sure. Yeah, let's all and, cool off and then yeah, we'll talk. Yeah. But, but the fact of the matter, especially if you are, uh, if you're in charge, if you're the boss mm-hmm. and your employee is mad at you, that may be the only time they will ever tell you the truth. And so so you've got to be ready to go into that conversation as like the emotional shock absorber in the conversation, like because it's also when someone else is mad, it's hard not to get mad in response. But as mm-hmm. long as you can manage your own emotions in the moment, that might be a really good time to solicit feedback. That is so interesting to me. And it, it is it is a real counterintuitive way of thinking about that. But it's really cool. Yeah, I think that that in in Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, he mm-hmm. compares feedback to boxing. And I, I have <laughs> never boxed. I know nothing about boxing. But it seems like a good analogy because I, I think when you box, you want to like, if somebody's hitting you, you want to step into it, not step back because you're mm. less likely to get knocked out. If you, uh, And so, but but that's very, that's very counterinstinctive. If somebody's punching at you, your instinct is to step back, not step into it. And so if somebody's mad at you, your instinct is to step back. But in fact, if you want to solicit feedback, you've got to step towards them. So it is a lot of radical candor is about overcoming social awkwardness and and just discomfort with with strong emotion. So speaking of uh, emotion and style and aggression and all these kind of characteristics of communication, it of course leads to the question about gender and diversity and and kind of all the different approaches that different types of people with different backgrounds might take. So what patterns have you noticed when it comes to those characteristics of our identity and how they show up in the radical candor conversation? Yeah, radical candor is really hard with someone who looks like you. It's even harder with someone who's different from you along one dimension mm. or another. And because it feels it feels riskier and because it's it's easier to misunderstand one another. Mm-hmm. And so a, a couple of things that I have observed specifically about gender is that very often Men, when they have a direct report who's who's a woman, 
will tend to pull their punches when giving feedback. Mm-hmm. They will tend to, I was talking to, to someone who, is, who headed up diversity and inclusion at a big bank, and he said, you know, I'll see this happen over and over and over again. Uh, uh, a partner goes into a meeting with a client and brings an associate. Week one, the associate is a man. Associate makes a mistake. The partner tells them after the meeting on the cab ride back to the office. In no uncertain t- terms, they screwed up. And the person learns and they don't make the mistake again. Then the next week, same situation, except this time the, the analyst is, is a woman and the partner doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And so the woman does it. And it's not that the partner is some kind of misogynist jerk trying to kill the, the careers of the women on his team. It's just that he's been taught since he was a kid to be gentler with women. So I have this advice for that situation, which happens all the time. One is if you're the, if you're the man in that situation, realize that you owe feedback to everybody on your team and, and you owe it to tell them in, in not in exactly the same way because everybody is different, but you owe it to tell them. You owe it to tell them in, in, in the way that they can hear. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I would say is that men cry too. I think very often a man <laughs> is afraid a woman will cry, but it, I mean, maybe this says more about me than about men, but the men who've worked for me have cried just as much as the women. Uh, so men cry too. <laughs> right. and, and, and finally, you are not water soluble. Like it's not the end of the world if the other person starts to cry. Right. So it's your job to give the feedback and, and to you want to when you get emotions, when you get sorrow or anger, when you get feedback, that's your cue to move up on the care personally dimension of radical mm-hmm. candor. Uh, so it's an opportunity for better communication. So that's one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, very often a woman, when she is being radically candid, will get unjustly accused of obnoxious aggression. Been there. Only it won't be called obnoxious aggression. She'll be called abrasive or bitchy or what's worse. Yeah, cue uh, the Democratic primary. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And and this is painful. This is very painful. And I found, especially when I was early in my career, when I got that kind of when I got that kind of uh, sort of feedback, I should have ignored it. But but it, it's hard to ignore feedback that you're not likable, mm-hmm. and or or that you've been been a jerk. And it's very tempting to respond to it by going the wrong direction on the challenge directly dimension of radical candor, and that's a disaster because as bad as obnoxious aggression is, ruinous empathy and manipulative insincerity are even worse. You will fail in your career if you can't challenge directly. And so you've got to take a moment to move up on the care personally dimension, not tons and tons of time, but take a moment to say, look, I can see you really care about this. I'm, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be part of the solution, not part of the problem, whatever it is, however it is that you want to express that you care about the other person. Now, this is also fraught for women because very often at work, you get, you, you, you're expected to do all of the emotional labor around the office. You're expected mm-hmm. to bake cupcakes for people's birthdays, whatever. You don't have to do that. You, you don't have to get dragged too high up on the care personally dimension. Uh, Virginia Woolf wrote one of my favorite essays about, she called it the angel in the house. And she was referring to this Victorian poem about how wonder, women are so wonderful because 
they have no wants or needs of their own. They just exist to serve the wants and needs of the men around them. And Virginia, Amazing. Virginia Woolf said it, it is the job of the woman writer to kill the angel in the house. Mm. And I think I think she went a long way toward doing that. But unfortunately, I think she didn't fully says she's kind of a zombie, the angel in the house. And and the angel has left the house and entered the office. So mm-hmm. don't don't let yourself get dragged into a situation, get dragged so high up on the care personal league dimension that you burn out. You you can't you can't do it all. But you do want to take a moment and you probably do have to take more moments than the men around you to show that you're you're saying this thing because you care. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? That makes totally. so much sense. Yeah. I'm sort of sitting and marinating on interactions. <laughs> but yeah. by the way, the gender in the workplace is the whole topic of my next book. So uh, we can oh, talk exciting. all day long. About it. Exciting. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to just go back to in that, Kim, that I uh, have found really helpful is a couple of people that I have worked with in my career are people that cry when they receive feedback. Yeah. And Positive or negative, by the way, just like unopened conversation that is personal in nature, regardless of who is delivering it to them, is a very emotional experience. And in two different instances, I've had those people say to me, I really want to hear what you have to say. This is a reaction I cannot control and don't worry about it. Like, it's not you. It's not that you're doing something wrong as the person who is delivering this. This is just how I respond. And it was like they gave me permission because I then I didn't have to worry that, like, I was hurting their feelings or I was doing it incorrectly. In both cases, they were like, this is just how I am. And also, don't let it stop you. I'm ready for it. So, like, I would just say to the people out there in the world, regardless of what kind of crier you are, male or female or other, um, maybe, like, say that to to your (laughs) To your bosses, to your feedback givers, because I found that to be a very helpful sort of working agreement between me and those people that then didn't hinder our ability to talk openly. So important. I also am a crier. I cry. I cry a lot. My children hate this about me. But <laughs> but I, and I worked. I had a boss who who said you can't cry, and I just Ugh. had to explain to him I can't not cry. That right. is not helpful. Yeah, you can't breathe uh, either. So just yeah, take that yeah, into exactly. consideration. And and and, I, and you know, I said, and moreover, when you say that to me, it makes it ten times more likely that I will cry. Of course, <laughs> I'm going to see you walking down the down the hall, and I'm going to burst into tears because because it's like it's like Tolstoy wrote about his brother sent him to the corner as a child and he said you can't leave the corner of the room until you stop thinking about a white bear and then he couldn't stop thinking of about the white bear. <laughs> right uh so we can get into these loops so i think i think that is brilliant advice just say look i'm a crier i'm gonna cry I'm not blaming you because I'm crying and I don't want you to blame you because I'm crying. I am yeah. I own my emotions, you own yours. Yeah. In some ways I think that candor about candor kind of conversation is critical foundational work for any relationship, which is kind of mm-hmm. like before we even get into the space where we're exchanging information and insight if we can talk about how we do that and how we show up to that and and the experiences we've had and the lessons we've learned, like right off the bat, you're just starting with a cool, to your point, Rodney, like a cool working agreement of, 
all right, I'm a little bit of a crier. Maybe I'm, you know, I struggle in this area. I struggle in that area. Like now we know the territory and we're both committed to making our, you know, kind of loop feedback loops work well together. So I, I do think that's, you know, that's time worth taking. It'll save you probably hours of confusion and frustration later. Absolutely. And it's also, it doesn't have to be, you can sort of explain these things as you go. You don't have right, to right. Doesn't have write to be your some... operating instructions uh, unless you want to, but right. but I think it is really helpful. I mean, this is what I say to people, but another thing about radical candor is not when you give it, you have to, it's more about listening actually than it is about talking. It's mm-hmm. more about adjusting your response. And again, when someone is angry or when someone is really upset by some feedback that you have offered, especially if it's criticism. Sometimes people get upset by praise, by the way. We can talk more about that. But, But if someone is upset, it can be really helpful to say, it seems like you're angry, to name the emotion that you think you're seeing and make sure that you're you're humble, not you're angry, because the person right. may be presenting as angry, but maybe they're actually confused. Or if I'm crying, it's usually because I'm really angry, not because I'm sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. so you want to make sure that you're you're humble about the emotion you think you're seeing, but just that's your that's your moment to sort of have a moment about emotions. You don't have to have a theoretical abstract yeah. conversation, but as you go, you can sort of have these have these conversations and communicate openly. Absolutely. The the other thing, just thinking about the example you gave about the banker and the associate, um, and I've seen that play out so many times um, in my own career, both as the woman who didn't hear and also as a person who observes those kind of feedback loops. I just feel like there's a real cruelty in omission And it is a form of lying to not tell someone what's going on. And I have a lot of conversations with people that I coach and interact with and probably more more women than men that fall into this that just spend a lot of time trying to guess what people who are seemingly kind of inscrutable but ultimately have a lot of power over them think and feel. So I just like – I just wanted to sort of say that because as you gave that example, it's like – what it made me think about is often I think in trying to protect people, what we're actually doing is lying to them. And mm-hmm. so like, I just sort of wondered how you thought about that. Yes. Uh, I think lying is a strong word. Uh, although in, in many ways it's the right word for this, when you're not telling them something, you're certainly harming them. Even right. if you don't in- intend to harm them, you're harming them. And if you're a manager, results matter, not intentions. So, mm. so you want to make sure that you are are helping people, not harming them with the things that you are saying or not saying. Mm-hmm. And and very often our instincts are exactly the opposite of what the reality is. So our instinct is, oh, I'm being nice not to tell the person, but in fact, you're you're leading the person towards getting fired, which is really right. not so nice. <laughs> not that all. nice. No, not so nice. So, Kim, as we kind of uh, wrap things up here, I'm wondering, is there anything that we haven't said that you would offer to someone who has struggled with this, which is everybody, and is thinking about, all right, this is the week that I like go back into the office and I show up to conversations differently? Like, what would your parting words of wisdom to them be? 
I don't know if they're words of wisdom, but I think if I think if you're listening to this and you do one thing, you will have spent your time wisely. And the one thing to do is to jot down right now, jot down what is the question that you're going to use to solicit criticism from others? Because if all you say is, do you have any feedback for me? You're wasting mm-hmm. your breath. I can already tell you what the answer is. Oh, no, everything's fine. Nobody wants to give you feedback. So how can you ask? My coach when I worked at Google was Fred Kaufman, and he offered me this question. He said, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? Mm, I love that love question, that. and I use it all the time. But I was, I was coaching uh, Krista Quarles when she was CEO of OpenTable, and she said, I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth. She said, the question <laughs> I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. So... <laughs> So that works to too. Yeah, it's another way to say it. But the key thing is that it needs to sound authentic to you. And so, so you want to make sure that, that you are thinking consciously before you get into the, into the situation of how you're going to ask for feedback. Because when you ask someone else to criticize you, you are putting them in an awkward situation. And you're putting yourself in an awkward situation. So you want to make sure that you are communicating that there's a payoff at the end. of the, you're, you're asking someone to take a risk. And so you want to ask the question in a way that shows you're going to reward the risk, not punish it. That makes so much sense. And I think that's exciting. I'm gonna, I don't even know what my question is. I'm going to go we gotta figure out. These. We got to think of these. Yeah, we're, we're going to make some really good ones. Each other. Send me um, a note. With that in mind, I think we uh, have to draw things to a close. So, Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was really, it was tons of fun. Great conversation with both of you. And Rodney, uh, are you open to some feedback about today's episode? I have a gift for you first. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we get to help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. If you like what you're hearing, give us a review or even better, much better, uh, forward this show to someone who needs it. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>